I don't have to like everything that happens in my country in order to love my country. When I'm able to see what I don't like, I'm actually able to work on it and make it better. That's Dolly Chug, social psychologist, behavioral scientist, and best-selling author. It's our patriotism. It's not something we're just entitled to. It's something we work towards. And I love the way, that way of thinking about an active stance to loving our country. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dolly Chug to discuss how guilt and shame can be forces for positive and impactful change, why developing grit helps us lay the path for a brighter future, and the importance of reframing our perspective. If we tell our brains it's okay for the picture to be a little crooked on the wall, it's okay if the puzzle piece doesn't fit, it's okay for there to be inconsistency, our brain can relax a little bit. It'll let go of its need to make everything consistent. And once we do that, we're able to see different possibilities for our future. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Dolly Chug is an award-winning professor, social psychologist, and best-selling author. She earned an MBA and PhD from Harvard University and recently published her second book, A More Just Future, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. I began our conversation by asking Dolly about her personal journey and how those experiences shaped her into the person she is today. I was actually born in India, but was six months old when my parents came to the United States. My dad was in grad school at Berkeley, and we're talking late 1960s. So imagine Berkeley, late 1960s. And then we moved, he gets a job working in West Texas. So we moved to uh, towns like Midland, Texas, Wichita Falls, Texas, Odessa, Texas. We moved every year. And so my early years experience was of being in an immigrant family, often the only Indian family in our community and moving every year. So there was a pretty constant search for a sense of belonging that was hard to find at the time. And I think that has shaped me as an adult in terms of interpersonally. I think I I tend to look for the folks on the outskirts and and relate to them, even though I feel a pretty deep sense of belonging in a lot of places now. And also intellectually, it's made me really interested in understanding how we see other people, how we see ourselves in relation to groups. What are the misconceptions and stereotypes we sometimes hold of people? That's stayed with me. And is that really, I mean, were those experiences like what led you to pursue a career in social psychology or was was it something else? 
this is a second career for me. I um, was a liberal arts undergrad, double majored in psychology and economics. So I definitely had an interest in psychology. My mother likes to remind me that for my like 15th or 16th birthday, she gave me a print subscription to Psychology Today, the magazine, because she saw me just in my questions and observations showing this real interest in human behavior. And she said to me then, I think you should be a psychologist. And of course, what 16-year-old is like, yes, mom, you're right. So of course I ignored her, did go on to major in psychology in college, but did not become a psychologist, went into a business career, investment banking, consulting, got an MBA. It was when I was 34 years old, 33 years old, that I actually started my PhD in social psychology and organizational behavior. So it's been a long journey, but I do think some of those, that early imprinting of experiences has stayed with me and that curiosity of human behavior has definitely stayed with me. And much of your research focuses on bounded ethicality. And and for the people who who are listening, which I think the majority of them who may not be familiar with what that means or even bounded rationality, like how would you explain this to them? Absolutely. Those are jargony terms that academics use. The way I think of it is I call it Uh, bounded ethicality, the psychology of good people. And what I mean by that is most of us, according to data, are interested in feeling like a good person and being seen as a good person by others. We don't all define good person the same. That varies widely. But this desire to sort of be affiliated with that, that identity is held by many people. At the same time, even though that's an identity we care about, it's called our moral identity, there's lots of evidence that we don't always live up to that aspiration we have of ourselves, partially because so much of our mind's work happens on autopilot. There's decades and decades of research and three, at least three Nobel Prizes that have pointed out the degree to which our brain works in an unconscious mode. And that's good, right? I mean, that's what allows us to do be complicated human beings that in the snap of a fingers, our brain processes 11 million thoughts, according to one study. But these are not thoughts like, oh, what should I have for lunch? Thought. It's that you can understand the words I'm saying without having to break down every single word that you know to sit up and not lie down right now. Those are kind of unconscious thoughts. And only 40, that's four zero of our thoughts in that moment of a snap of the fingers were conscious thoughts. So 99.99% are unconscious, a very small percent are conscious. And so the psychology of good people speaks to the fact that even though I may care about that moral identity, a lot of what's happening in my thoughts and actions is not happening through my conscious mind. It's happening through our unconscious mind. And that sometimes leads to a disconnect in in how I see myself and how I'm actually affecting others. So I know, as you say, like the psychology of good people, but I've also read that you say that none of us are good or perfectly ethical all the time, right? So, So a good person is not good all the time. No, no. And there's times when I'll just use myself as an example. I'm a professor that I will use a term with my students that I've used my whole life and then be told by my students that that's a very harmful, hurtful term. And I might respond defensively when they tell me this. I mean, there's sort of multiple breakdowns there. Or I might confuse two black male students who look nothing alike for each other because I'm relying on some little shortcut. Remember, my brain's on autopilot to remember people's names that's relying simply on race as opposed to a fuller view of my students. None of us are perfect, good people all the time. We're not wired to be that way. The problem is though, we have this 
good person, brittle narrative, like, oh, he's a good person. Or, you know, if you weren't raised to be a good person, you're just not a good person. We have these bad apple type of narratives that set us up to think of it as an either or. And that's a very brittle, scientifically unfounded way to think of ourselves. And it seems like that's also posed some interesting um, challenges even in society today where you could have somebody that's well-regarded, you know, for decades and yet... 10 years ago, they had one tweet where they said something, but today under a different context or a different light is now viewed a certain way. And now people like view this you know, seemingly good person as no longer good. And I think that's, that's a very kind of interesting perspective. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a couple of places where that narrative in, in the story you just told, that narrative gets in the way for us. I mean, one is where we viewed them as flawless before, as opposed to a sort of three-dimensional human being with both strengths and flaws. And where when we cancel them, what I'd like us to see, I, I'm not anti-canceling at all, but what I think is most important is what happens after the canceling. Like, is there growth? That's where being a good person, there's no growth, right? Because you either are or you aren't. What I've been trying to advocate for is being a goodish person, someone who's constantly getting better is a work in progress. And canceling, the ideas of canceling is hopefully that we get better from it, not that we, you know, we're not going to evaporate. So what happens after the canceling? Right. And with, so with your new book that, that's just come out, so it's titled A More Just Future, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. I want to know even just, you know, considering some of the previous books you've written and the research you've done, what motivated you to write this book? Well, this book comes from me writing the book I felt like I needed to read, quite honestly. Things that I've been struggling with in my relationship with, you know, as I mentioned, my, my parents came to this country love this country deeply. I love this country deeply. Greatest country on earth is the narrative I've heard my whole life. And yet I've been kind of learning things about our country's past that maybe I didn't fully know or learn growing up. And I've just felt all these emotions about it, like disbelief and anger and shame and guilt. And quite frankly, it makes me not want to learn it. I don't want to learn about Juneteenth or I don't want to learn about the Tulsa massacre, or I don't want to learn about the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, because it's very painful and it's just flying in the face of this vision I have of our country. And I intellectually, of course, understand that's not a useful perspective to just like shut down that learning process. And so I needed a toolkit on how to deal with those emotions so that I could be a little more resilient. And I couldn't find it out there I am a psychologist. I know there's lots of great research that helps us deal with complicated emotions. And so this book comes from a place of trying to build that toolkit using evidence-based findings from the research and then curating it with great stories. And I would say, it seems like a prevalent theme throughout all of this is like, don't believe everything you think. And even at the start of the book, you discuss the power of unlearning things. And, and I think you share an experience of taking a family vacation to South Dakota, if you could speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, this was like, talk about getting smug. Um, I had been reading the Little House on the Prairie books to my kids um, for a year, literally every night, worked through the whole series, like millions of people. I had loved these books as a kid. I loved the TV series. I was excited to share the books with my kids. They totally ate it up. Like they were six, seven years old and I think they thought Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of the book who writes about her family in the books, I think they thought she was like their sister or something. I mean, she was like part of our family. And we decided to 
you know, take a one week family vacation over the summer and go visit the actual historical places where the Ingalls family lived in DeSmet and in Walnut Grove. I remember my husband and I just being like, we are nailing this parenting thing. Like, this is an educational trip. Our kids are so happy. They're wearing prairie dresses every day. They're so into it. Very affordable. Like, it was just like this peak moment. And at the same time, I also remember there being these like little nudgy thoughts in the back of my mind, especially when we were there physically in the place where I'd be like, hold on, wasn't this land, someone else's land before the Ingalls family? Like, whose prairie was this? And of course, it was Native American land and it was taken from them. And there was genocide that led 60 million Native Americans to become 6 million. I mean, there were horrible atrocities committed, not necessarily specifically by the Ingalls family, but certainly they were the beneficiary of it. And I had not talked about that in that full year or on that vacation. And I realized that as the years have gone on since then and the decades since this happened, that the reason I didn't talk about it was not because my kids weren't ready. I mean, quite frankly, kids can handle, like kids understand fair play. Kids understand like you took my stuff. That wasn't fair. Like that's a conversation you can have with kids. I was not ready to think about it or talk about it. It was running against my narratives and it was bringing up all those emotions. And so that sort of toolkit that I was looking for, the book that I felt like I needed to read was really coming from a very personal place of realizing that because I couldn't cope with my own emotions, I was setting up my kids to have to unlearn eventually a whole bunch of stuff I had taught them, laying that in their lap instead of in my own. So we had Jay Van Babel, who I believe you know, he was on the podcast. We discussed how social identities can impact our bias. And, you know, he's referenced college and, you know, professional sports teams and how we can paint our faces and dress up, you know, like bulldogs and tigers. Um, but from your perspective, like, why is it that our social groups or even social economic groups, how do they influence our objectivity? Yeah, I mean, he has beautiful work in that area um, and a beautiful book with Dominic Packer. This home team bias, the idea, you know, there's classic study of two groups of fans from, from two teams watching the same game and coming to very different conclusions over who were better sports, who committed the fouls. And I think that's so relatable. You know, my daughter and my husband are going to a, a New York Mets game tonight. I am quite positive when they come home the story they will tell is how the umps, you know, couldn't call the ball. You know, like I know it's going to be a very particular home team bias that they will tell. You know, that's kind of funny in sports. I mean, it's not, it gets intense, of course, as well. But that, that same psychology is how we interact with other social identities we hold, including our identity, let's say, as Americans or identity as white Americans or black Americans, where the group we belong to is going to shape how we perceive the events that happen around us. Now, there's another layer to that psychology, which is the systems we live in. So one example of a system is what knowledge is conveyed in textbooks or what narrative is conveyed in our media, like movies. And when you combine the home team bias with there being a sort of limited population that is gatekeeping the narratives that we see in movies or textbooks, you realize that we're going to 
not necessarily see a full perspective on our country's past because it's going to have been reinforced both by our psychology and by our systems to just give a partial view like that little house on the prairie perspective. And I know in the book you state that our minds are not programmed for objectivity, they're programmed for consistency. And, and this is true. I say this as a parent of two young girls. We look at our children and they're, just, they're angels, they're infallible. And, it, and it's interesting. I don't, I don't want to go too dark, but you know, when you hear about a school shooting and then you, you know, they interview the parent and they say, oh, he was such a good boy, right? It seems like it, um, that in itself is obviously not being very objective, but if you could speak to what that really is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm also the parent of two girls. And, you know, there certainly is that, like, whether one uses Instagram or not, they're sort of like the Instagram version of our kids, you know, where they're just perfect and they're amazing and they're kind and they're all the things, right? But there's also then the real version of our kids where we can love them deeply, but not always like everything they do. We can see the things that maybe they need to work on, like, ah, you know, she interrupts a little too often that, you know, that's going to rub people the wrong way. We need to work on that. And I think of kind of our relationship with our country is sometimes falls into that Instagrammed version of flawlessness, airbrushedness, as opposed to, I don't have to like everything that happens in my country in order to love my country. When I'm able to see what I don't like, I'm actually able to work on it and make it better. I'm able to understand the perspectives of people who've had a different experience in my country than I have. So it allows us to step into a place of what I've been calling being a gritty patriot, where we have grit, the way that psychologist Angela Duckworth talks about grit, passion and perseverance in pursuit of a meaningful long-term goal, where the meaningful long-term goal is our love of country. It's our patriotism. It's not something we're just entitled to. It's something we work towards. And I love the way, that way of thinking about an active stance to loving our country as opposed to the Instagram stance. I found this interesting. So as you were describing like the Patriots dilemma and oftentimes like the more we love our country, the less likely we are to do the necessary work to improve it or the more pride we take in our ancestors, the harder it is for us to tell their full stories and you know both successes and shortcomings and really to do the work to make things better. Is that really, I mean, I, I'm curious, like why, why is that? I think it's because we get so invested in the narratives, right? And the narrative doesn't have much flex to it. It's like that good person, brittle identity. It's similar with this very narrow, you know, this country was founded on an ideal of liberty and justice and equality. That's a very aspirational ideal. I mean, to sort of enact an entire society that's able to make that real, despite all the ways in which we know human beings want to have power over other human beings and create status hierarchies and aren't always able to see the interests of others as equal to the interests of ourselves. That's a very aspirational identity. We have not always enacted that identity. And if we're going to view it as either we are that or we're not, just like that brittle good person identity, we're not going to be able to see past it. And so the Patriot's Dilemma speaks to that brittleness. The research that psychologists uh, Carol Dweck and others have done have talked about how powerful it is when we view ourselves as a work in progress. She calls it a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. And I think that's what can sort of get us out of that Patriot's Dilemma. I can love this country and at the same time view it as a work in progress as opposed to I love this country so much I can't see what it needs to work on. 
And I know through the book, you can have talk about the differences between guilt and shame. How, how would you differentiate the two? And then uh, and ultimately, it seems like both can be productive. Yeah, there's been some great work by emotion researchers that have talked about shame is about a negative emotion I have about myself. It's about me as a human being. Guilt is a negative emotion I have about something I did. It's my action. And the way we often talk about guilt and shame is that guilt is more useful than shame because shame, I kind of shut down. If my whole being just stinks, well, then what can I do? I mean, I might as well do nothing. Versus if there's something I've done that's wrong, then I can fix that thing. I can apologize for that thing. I can do that thing better. So guilt is a bit more action-oriented. That's been the, the research to date. There's been some more recent research by Becky Schomburg and her co-authors that have said, but if we can help people see a way in which that shame is useful, that yes, it may be about my whole being needs to sort of be addressed, but there is a path forward, then just like guilt, it can actually turn into something active as well. Right, and, and I guess the sense of like shame is saying, well, I'm a bad person, right? Or if someone starts to identify that way versus guilt saying, oh, you know, I probably shouldn't have eaten those cookies or I should, you know, th- that sort of approach. So then you know, as, as we embrace the idea of unlearning things, which, I, you know, it's obviously not easy and we're challenged by a lot of these different contradictions, like how do we allow our brains to find consistency and inconsistency? That unlearning is so tough. The thing that's helped me a lot is research that I learned about on paradox. Paradox, of course, is when there's two conflicting truths, you know, that our forefathers of our country did extraordinary things. I mean, extraordinary vision, extraordinary writing and documents, extraordinary odds they defeated. And it is also true that many of our forefathers, while they were building that vision of equality and liberty, were enslaving other human beings were separating children from their parents, were torturing those human beings if they didn't comply or they tried to escape. Like, I just kind of tensed up just saying that. Like, both of those things are well-documented and true, and they seem to be in contradiction with each other. And our brain, of course, doesn't like that. Our brain does what my brain just did, tense up, wants to sort of put something aside and not allow that contradiction to be true. What the research on paradox says is if we tell our brains it's okay for the picture to be a little crooked on the wall, it's okay if the puzzle piece doesn't fit, it's okay for there to be inconsistency, our brain can relax a little bit. It'll let go of its need to make everything consistent. And something really important happens then when we're in that paradox mindset we're able to be more resilient. We're able to be more creative. We're able to see different possibilities in the world around us as opposed to getting stuck in this, you know, for example, should we teach this history in schools or shouldn't we? What if we allow the possibility that we can teach the paradox of American history? Both things can be true. And once we do that, we're able to see different possibilities for our future. It's, it's just fascinating to me. It's like we as human beings, we crave consistency, yet we are rarely consistent ourselves or even finding consistency in others. And I found interesting in, in the book when you write that, you know, yes, it's true that our ancestors did both honorable and horrible things. And it's true that our wealth today came from hard work and theft from others. And you can, you can have both. Yeah. I mean, we do have both. I mean, it's when people say, well, you know, my family, you know, how, how can you say, that you know, my family benefited from privilege. We work so hard. 
There's no doubt in my mind that the, your family worked so hard. Absolutely. Privilege is not saying that you didn't work so hard. Both things can be true. You might've had a tailwind at your back and may have worked so hard and sacrificed so much. I found this fascinating because I think I've evolved over the years myself. So my family and I, we immigrated to America when I was four years old and growing up and I look at it and say, wow, this, I love this country. It's the land of opportunity. You know, we came, you know, we were refugees, but over the years, it's interesting. Like my perspective has changed. And anytime I hear anybody say they're self-made, I do, I do not believe in any self-made individuals. And you could say, we're also very lucky. We're very lucky to be able to have the opportunity to come over to this country, to have a college education, to have the opportunity to have the people that helped you along the way, all those things. And you as, as a child of immigrants also, I know in the book you talk about almost like an ironic plot twist that kind of resonated through your experience, if you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your experience. I've gone through a similar evolution, I would say, in my own thinking. When my family immigrated to this country in the late 60s, the stories I heard about that growing up were around my dad was an engineer, is an engineer, and that the United States needed more engineers and doctors, and that they kind of went to India and were like, please, you know, come here. You know, some version of that is I feel kind of what I heard in my my community growing up. So I was surprised to learn only in the last couple of years that that isn't really how it went down, that the civil rights movement in the United States led to there being challenges to the U.S. government to apply these this notion of being egalitarian, not just to how we treat people within the country uh, who are already here, but also to those seeking to immigrate here. And that included the laws that the differentiated between white Europeans and people who were not white coming from other countries. And so there was this idea that we should, we should open up the laws to be more supportive of people who want to come who are not white Europeans. And there was lots of debate and controversy over that. And there was lots of resistance to that. And there was a lot of concern that it was going to change our white Christian nation. I mean, these were things that were openly said and when the laws were in fact changed, it was under this kind of discussion of, listen, we're going to open up the laws, but don't worry, nothing's actually going to change. Like we're going to stay, these laws aren't actually going to lead to many changes in our demographics. Um, of course, what we know is that they led to massive changes in our demographics. And and my family was was one of the beneficiaries of that. But it was so surprising to me to realize that there wasn't this kind of embrace that I think I had grown up believing about why we're here and how we were regarded when we came here. I'm not saying like everybody was against us being here, but it, it wasn't the warm embrace that I had grown up believing. And I'm curious if just from another perspective, it's almost like, and this might be an odd question to ask, but like, what perspective is more productive, right? Because one could argue in saying, you know, you grow up, you take this great pride, it kind of formulates your story of your self-identity, then you, you know, then that plot twist and you find out, well, really that's not the case. I mean, is that good? I think it's a great question. I've wondered the same thing. I think the idea though is unlearning is hard. We certainly don't want to burden our children with deep cynicism. Like there's no value in that. The challenge with me not knowing a fuller story growing up is that the narrative of a model minority, the narrative of this country embraces anyone who's willing to work hard 
is challenged by the reality and the facts that that's not always true for everybody. And there's lots of data to support that. And so it leads me to not understand the world I live in today. So when I look around and I see massive disparities, healthcare, wealth, education, where people live, I don't have a way to understand that. It's confusing if I have the narrative that I grew up with, as opposed to a truer understanding, which allows me to connect the dots between all the systems and biases that in fact were working against lots of communities. In, in your book, you discuss the long time ago illusion, which I think um, many of us are, are quite guilty of perhaps, of, of saying they'll look at some historical event and say, well, that was a long time ago. Or, you know, they look at a, you know, a sports team that, you know, like the Washington Redskins and say, well, why would we change the name of that? It's like, who cares? Like things were different then. That was so long ago. Can you speak to what this is and, and how can we overcome it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was doing some reading on the research on time perception, like how we look at things in the past and the future and kind of mentally time travel. It's really interesting. We tend to look at the past blurrier, literally blurrier than the future. In other words, like if something was a year ago in the past, it feels like a long time ago in a different way than the future, a year in the future. We also, research shows, tend to blame victims in the past more than we do in the future. I mean, if you tell someone something bad's gonna happen to somebody a year from now, we don't blame them as much as we tell someone something bad happened to someone a year ago. We, oh, they maybe they did something to kind of make that happen. So there's these weird time perception illusions that are working against us seeing our history accurately. On top of it all, the long time ago illusion is, uh, let me give an example, a very concrete example. I recently learned that Anne Frank and Martin Luther King, if they were alive today, would be the same age as Barbara Walters. Like, what? The host of The View, the former host of The View, what? I mean, I think of the Holocaust as being so long ago. I think of the civil rights movement as being so long ago. But in fact, they're very much in Barbara Walters' lifetime. And that blurriness we have on the past makes it hard for us to connect the dots between what happened then and what's happening now. And it's interesting that you also talk about like the Bob Marley and kind of the Marley hypothesis uh, around just even the idea of, let's say, ignorance of racism in the past and leads to denial of racism in the present, which is, you know, which is really another case for really having a better understanding of our history. Yeah, the Marley hypothesis, uh, psychologist Fia Salter and her colleagues came up with that. In fact, when I first read about it, I was like, oh, I'm one of the scholars, last name must be Marley, Marley hypothesis. But in fact, they named it after Bob Marley and his song, Buffalo Soldier, when he talks about the dangers of not knowing our history. And their studies show exactly that, that it was sort of a kind of encouraging finding, which is giving people just a little bit of historical knowledge, just like a couple of paragraphs, actually increase their ability to recognize systemic racism in the present. So that connecting of the dots between a long time ago and now really pays off in our ability, again, to see the present and understand it and not just be baffled by why is everything so messed up. 
and though I'm curious, because I, I know you mentioned this in the book of like, where do we go from here? Like, okay, so it's like, so what can we do? I mean, obviously it's, it's acknowledging and seeing like, okay, there's a lot of room for us to, to grow and evolve. And I'm curious, even for the, for the listeners of this podcast, you know, when you're setting out to do anything of significance, if you're building a business, if you're raising children, or if you just want to make you know, a great contribution to society, we have to do it in a sustained and resilient way. I know you, you touched on Angela Duckworth in, in her research on building grit. You also talk about taking responsibility if you could unpack both of those. Sure. Yeah. So, and I love that, that, you know, you're building the Game Changing Attorney podcast. I got to believe there's a million moments where you have to show passion and perseverance to keep that going towards that meaningful long-term goal. So that gritty patriot mindset is just, it's rich with possibility if we can view ourselves through that lens. So it's not just what we wear, you know, red, white, and blue on the 4th of July. It's what sort of action, active stance can we take towards loving our country? And we can pair that with this beautiful metaphor that Isabel Wilkerson offers in uh, her book, Cast. And she talks about like, if you were to buy a house, an old house, and now you're living in the house, and then you realize, oh, there's a leak in the basement. Familiar, unfortunately, to a lot of people who've lived in old houses. You don't say, well, I'm just gonna let it leak. I guess I'm not going to deal with the leak in the basement because I did not cause that leak. I'm just going to see what happens. I mean, we might do that for a couple of weeks while we figure out what to do, but eventually we have to deal with the leak. Why? Because we know if we don't, it's going to cause bigger problems. Small problems become big problems, right? And similarly, she offers this metaphor of the old house to be what if we viewed our country that way? So sometimes you say, well, what happened in the past wasn't my fault. Why should I take the blame or responsibility for it? She says, well, it's the leak in the basement. It's your house now. What are the ways in which that problem is going to become an even bigger problem if we don't deal with the leak in the basement? And I just love that metaphor. I think it's it's really intuitive. And, you know, and to me, it like brings me back to that little house on the prairie. We go full circle of, yes, I may not... It may not have been my ancestors. It may have not been my fault. It may not have been my responsibility what happened. But in fact, this is my house. This is my country. And in the book, you say that apologies are another way to take responsibility. And in fact, the research says that apologies matter. But what would you say like makes for an effective apology? Because there's certainly ineffective ones and just saying, hey, I'm sorry. You know, oftentimes that doesn't seem to make much of a difference. Right. Well, there's there's certainly that I'm sorry if you were offended, which places the responsibility on the other person as opposed to ourselves. And sincerity, of course, is important in an apology. What's really interesting about people who study like do research on apologies is they've found that the reason apologies matter to us is less about the past, right? You're apologizing for something in the past. So what you would think it was about the past, but it's actually the reason we look for an apology is that we want a reset. It signals the reset that something's going to be different in the future. So that's the indicator we're looking for in an apology. So a sincere apology that's effectively felt and delivered is one that signals that reset. So for example, it would be, if I'm deflecting responsibility, I'm sorry, if you were defend, if you were offended, that's not signaling that I'm going to do anything different in the future, as opposed to, I'm sorry, I've learned a lot from this. I'm going to do better next time, or I'm going to educate myself, signals that I've reset. And on the notion of grit, there's a case study that you discuss in the book, and I was I was reading it, and I was just, I was just in disbelief that someone could have 
the incredibly optimistic and positive perspective that they do today, you know, just given the experience that they've had, if you could share that. Yeah, I think you're speaking about the story of George Decay, who was the one of the original cast of Star Trek and sort of one of the most amazingly, uh, in terms of staying power as a celebrity and relevance as a celebrity, like 50 years of being relevant. He now has millions and millions of followers on social media. When he was four years old, World War II had the U.S. and Japan at war, and his Japanese-American family, as well as 120,000 other Japanese-Americans, were imprisoned by the U.S. government for crimes not yet committed that they might someday commit a crime, uh, that they might not be loyal to the United States. And his family lost their home. They lost their dry cleaning business. They were taken hundreds of miles away, put behind barbed wire. Men with guns wouldn't let them leave. He was four years old. And he, like so many other families, have had to reckon with this idea that this country they love would do this to them as Americans, as American citizens. And when he speaks of his country now, 80 years later, he speaks with such love. He even speaks with love of President Roosevelt. You know, FDR issued the executive order that led to his his family's incarceration. And he even speaks with affection for him. He, of course, hates what the action that was committed and is spending much of his life trying to educate us about that. But he also can see the ways in which FDR was a great president who did great things, who built bridges, who got us out of the, helped get us out of the depression, who got swept up in a racist narrative and didn't know enough to sort of do differently. That ability he has to hold that paradox, to hold those conflicting truths, that ability he has to show grit, passion and perseverance towards his love of country. I just sat in awe of that. And to me that, you know, I closed the book with his story because it captures for me that if he can be a gritty patriot, if he can hold paradox, then surely I could do the same. I know you talk about just, you know, loving your country with passion, but not perseverance is more like the, you know, the newlywed variety of love. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, if patriotism was something that we earned and not, you know, not just war, right? We, we'd see it more as, you know, just approaching this country as a project that requires grit, like in George's story, instead of just a, a birthright or an entitlement. That's right. Exactly. You know, the mid-relationship version of romance, you know, you have to sort of navigate a few things. You have to work on the relationship and that's where the perseverance gets paired with the passion. You know, it seems that even as I was kind of reading through the whole thing, I mean, it seems that we as human beings, we oftentimes view things as binary, you know? So we were talking about like, you can have both. You can have a great country with, with a lot of challenges and things that need, you know, just growth and improvement. Someone could be a good person who also has flaws, all these different things. And I think as soon as we start to embrace more of that, because I, th I think that's really what's authentic. Unfortunately, it's really not what many of us see in social media or on news cycles and things like that. But that just seems like a very prevalent theme of just not looking at situations or people is just simply binary. I love that. I think that's so well said, the way you captured it. And the binary bias is something that scholars have looked at. And we absolutely tend to do that. What's interesting though is yet, think of like some of the movies we love. We love the hero's journey, right? Like the idea that there's this complicated, nuanced character that we get to know and fall in love with their traits. Or a lot of the TV shows we love have these complicated 
flawed characters that we love. So on the one hand, our brain, I think that automatic unconscious part of our brain does go for those binaries. And on the other hand, the conscious part of our brain really relishes the nuance and the reality of how people are. I agree. So Dolly, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think it's growing. I think it means being better today than you were yesterday. And my guess is most of your listeners are that. They're better attorneys now than they were a year ago. If they own their law firm, they're better at running their business now than they were a year ago. I think being a game changer means always getting better. And that includes in terms of how we view our country and how we view ourselves. I want to give a huge thank you to Dolly Chug for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Dolly said that ignorance of past mistakes leads to denial of present issues. By accepting responsibility and harnessing grit, we can lead and inspire others to drive meaningful social change. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Dolly Chug, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Attorney.com.